Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 if you're not there already. We went on vacation a, a week ago Friday, and um, I would just say that we felt like the Griswolds, if you're familiar with that movie. Literally everything that could go wrong did. I'm not going to take time to explain it here, but I'll just give you this much. A 15-hour trip turned into 18 hours because, in part, um, about a third of the customers of Wisconsin Energy lost electricity in a major storm that rolled through two hours before we got there. And the people's house we were staying in, it took me 45 minutes to go three miles from Coleman, Wisconsin, to their house because I couldn't figure out a way to get in because there were so many trees and power lines down. And the vacation was pretty much... Uh, that's the way it went the rest of the time, so I'm actually glad to be back in Culpeper. But the reason, one of the reasons that we went up there, one of the primary reasons is because I love airplanes and I love air shows and the largest air show in the United States occurs in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in July. And I, I got to spend one day uh, watching arrivals for people who don't like airplanes, that sounds boring. The people who love airplanes, that's really exciting. And then I spent one day at the air show. 10,000 airplanes or so were there. It was just a wonderful time. But a lot of people know this already, and that is that flying is is safer than driving. All you have to do is, is drive Interstate 80 between Ohio or Pennsylvania and Chicago, and you'll know that for sure, Right. But there are times when a pilot needs to be very careful. Usually the conditions in which they need to be careful are when it's dark and cloudy at night and they're flying over water and there's no light reference on the land that they can see. They sometimes, pilots taken off, they call this a black hole takeoff. And when they can't see the horizon and it's night and it's cloudy, there's a condition called spatial or disorientation that can set in and it deals with your inner ear. And your inner ear tells you that you're flying straight and your instruments tell you that you're turning and you have to decide at that point, are you going to believe what your, your head is telling you, your inner ear, or are you going to believe your instruments? And the pilots that believe their instruments will come through that okay. The pilots that don't and they trust their ear and they, ha- they don't put their faith in their instruments, what they do with spatial disorientation is they start turning and they turn harder and harder. They go into a spiral bank and they end up augering into the ground or the water uh, nose first because they did not trust their instruments. This is exactly what happened to John F. Kennedy Jr. He took off for Martha's Vineyard over water on a cloudy night with no uh, visible horizon and that's that's what happened to his airplane. Now, when a Christian endures suffering, it can be disorienting, especially when it's for doing righteous and moral deeds. And that is what Peter is referring to today in the passage that Calvin read for us. When we, when we suffer for doing good, we can begin to question many things. For example, am I being punished by God? Is God as good as He claims to be? Am I being treated unfairly? And if we're not careful, we can get our eyes off the Lord and onto our circumstances. And when this occurs, we become spiritually disoriented. 
In the old days, before glass panels, pilots had what was called a six-pack of gauges. And it's right in front of the yoke, uh, this, uh, this six-pack. And they're very important. You trust the gauges, pretty much you're going to do okay in your flying. And they're, they're, they were placed right in front, so you could see them right away, your reference. You could scan the gauges and go on. And these six gauges were the most basic instruments or, or gauges that could keep a pilot out of trouble. Just as it is important for a pilot to keep his eyes on his instruments, it is important that a Christian keep their eyes on Jesus Christ and on spiritual truth and in God's Word. Otherwise, in the midst of the battle, they can become spiritually disoriented and they can begin to question the sovereign goodness. So, in the passage today, Peter gives six things, principles to remember when enduring suffering for righteousness. And I just want to touch on those today and and encourage you this way. The first thing that Peter says is that we can expect suffering. Look at what he says in verse number 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. Do not be surprised. Don't think it's strange. We should expect suffering to come our way from time to time when we follow Christ, shouldn't we? We, we really should. Peter uses an interesting word to describe the suffering. Look at the verse again. He, he uses the term fiery trial. He's not talking about the garden variety trial. I have a hangnail or something like that. Um, he's talking about something that's very serious. The word translated fiery trial is literally the word burning. So do not be surprised at the burning when it comes to test you. The same word is used in Revelation 18 and verse number 9. And the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Same word as in 1 Peter 4.12, verse number 18. And they cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like that great city? And so this is, this is the word that Peter's using. This is not your garden variety trial. This is social ostracization. Anyway, you get the idea. Um, this is people you losing jobs and whatever else, very serious consequences for being a, a, a Christian. And you may, it may cause you to ask this question. Why would God do this? Why would God reward somebody who loves him and obeys him with a fiery trial? The answer is found in the same verse. Look at verse number 12. Because it comes to test you. It says, the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Now, the same, the same word in testing is used in 1 Peter 1 7. Turn to 1 Peter 1 7. I want you to see it here with me. 1 Peter 1 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. There's that word burning fire again. May be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's a wonderful promise that we covered when we began First Peter. The, the fiery trial comes from the hand of God to prove who is and who is not one of his own. That's the reason you do it. We appreciate that, don't we? We appreciate testing and trials in almost everything. For example, when you have gold, the, the fire of the, that the heats the gold, melts the gold, and all the impurities are taken off, and the gold is more pure, you have pure gold. Now sometimes, that's the kind of trial that the, that the Bible talks about coming your way, the purifying kind of trial. This trial that we're talking about here, I want to reemphasize, is not a trial of purification. It's a trial to show who's in and who's out. Go to 1 Peter 4.12 again. He states that the fiery trial tests you. Now, um, that word testing is very interesting. Jesus uses the same concept in Luke 8.13. You can turn there if you want in Luke 8.13. Let me set it up and, and then I'll read it for you. Luke 8.13 is the parable of the soils. And Jesus is explaining the soils. You have the, the wayside soil, the stony ground soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. You remember that? The four soils represent the human heart. The seed that is sown in the parable represents the Word of God. And I believe in that ter- interpretation, and I believe the majority of evangelicals believe that only one of those soils is a believing soil. That's the fruitful soil. All the rest of them are unbelieving. And Jesus is is teaching about the rocky ground soil. And he says this in Luke. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Let me catch up. Here we go. Luke 8.13. He says this. He says, um, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, there's that word testing, fall away. This verse is not teaching that somebody can lose their salvation, because he says, what kind of seed is it? It has no what? Root. It's not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not rooted in the say in Jesus and his saving work. Rather, it's, it's a kind of heart who receives Jesus because he believes that God has a wonderful plan for their life. This, this is a person who receives uh, Jesus superficially because he believes that God will fix his marriage, make his life better, give him a better job, remove the trials, whatever the trials is from his life, will make him successful or whatever superficial reason you would like to think of. The, this is the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here on the rocky ground soil. And what Jesus says is at a time of testing, these people say, well, I thought Jesus was going to fix my life. My life has gotten worse since I've become a believer. That's enough of this Christianity business. And they flee. We, we see this in the United States, don't we? In, back in the 1990s and, and earlier, it, it was good for you socially to go to church and be a believer. 
businessmen went to church because they knew it was good for business. They, they would go to church and they would make connections, right, at church. Politicians, back in the 90s, every politician was a Christian, weren't they? They were. They all claimed to be. What has happened? Somebody asked that. Here's the answer. You ready? It is no longer a social benefit to claim to be a Christian. Rather, is a social negative. Therefore, you see all these reports about how droves of people are leaving the church. That's not what's happening. What's happening is what Jesus is talking about and what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4.12. There's testing going on. It's not even that bad, and people are leaving. It's the genuineness of the confession that's being tested here. And that's not even a real trial. You see? Scripture is so practical for what we see going on even in the society around us. I love how practical Scripture is. So expect suffering is the first thing that we do. The second one is we should rejoice. Rejoice. Look at, look at verse number 13. But rejoice. Now how do we rejoice? This is very important. Here's a qualifier. In so far as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So increased suffering for Christ will result in increased joy in the life of the believer. I, I told you, look very carefully. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. What does he mean by that? Is he, is he talking about crucifixion? He's not talking about crucifixion here. He is saying this. The degree, to the degree that our suffering matches the sufferings of Jesus, we can rejoice because we're going to receive glory. Christ was rejected. And when you're rejected for being a believer, rejoice. Christ's message was rejected. When you witness to people and people reject your message, yes, you should be sorrowful for them, but you should rejoice because you're sharing in the same rejection that Christ experienced in His evangelistic message. Do you remember John chapter 6? John chapter 6 is one of my favorite chapters in, in John's gospel. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And, and 15, 20,000 people, however many were, were fed on the mountainside. Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee by night. There's a storm at night. The next morning, crowds of people go around the top of the Sea of Galilee and where Jesus was. And what does he tell them? He says, you're only following me because you want your stomachs filled with good things. Because I did this great miracle. And he begins some very hard teaching. He says, in other words, he, he says, if you, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have part of me. And he, he, he goes in these hard sayings, and we understand what that is now. He's talking about communion and stuff. But the Bible says this, close to the end of the of John chapter 6, it says, everyone left him. And Jesus, so many people left him, that Jesus turned to the disciples and said, will you leave also? And what did Peter say? Peter said, you have the words of life. 
You see, we, we can be sorrowful for the person who, who rejects the gospel message because we know what's coming if they do not repent and believe the gospel. But we can rejoice because we're experiencing what Jesus experienced and we know that we will share in His glory in the future. Now, why why does this happen? There's a little doctrine in here that that I, I think is is going to be a blessing for you to see. Look at the second half of verse number thirteen. Look at what he says. He says that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That you may be rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed, and that is directly connected to the degree to which you share in his sufferings. Our participation in his sufferings means that we will also participate in his glory. Did you know that? This is one of the most exciting concepts in the Bible to me. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you as a believer. It doesn't matter that your message is rejected so much here, that you're not popular here, because the Bible says that because of our union with Christ, that's what theologians say, we're united with Christ, we share in the glory that He shares in. You say, well, that doesn't sound right, Pastor, because only God, Christ should share in the glory. Well, it's scriptural. Um, Romans 6, 5 says that we share in His, we're united with Him in His death and resurrection. And Paul said in, in Romans eight seventeen this, he said, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's, here it is, ready? Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Isn't that amazing? Now think to yourself for just a minute. How many of you have been marginalized in one way or another because you're a believer? How many of you have had your message rejected? Some of you may have even been scoffed at. Some of you may have even been passed over for a job because of your your state of believing in Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in this because you're sharing in the sufferings and you will share in the glory in heaven. Now, I don't know about you. I, I tell this to, to everybody everywhere. Edgecombs, we're, we're just average, ordinary people. There's nothing exceptional about us Edgecombs. None of us really got scholarships. None of us are great athletes. I got, I got a case of athlete's foot one time. But we're, we're, not, we're not athletes. We're just plain people. And I rub shoulders with people around here, and you got this scholarship person, this athlete person. I'm thinking, wow, I'm just a plain person. I never got glory for anything on earth. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll tell you something else, and this is free. This is not in my sermon notes, but um, the quickest way for me to shut down a sermon or shut down a conversation with somebody is to tell them I'm a pastor. It happened to me. To, okay, I got to tell this. Can I tell a story? So, if you've ever been to Oshkosh, there's these four gigantic exhibit halls. They're massive. And if you want to get out of the sun, you go in these exhibit halls, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vendors. And I don't have an airplane, so I don't need a glass panel or anything like that. And so I'm walking through, and I see the Virginia aviation display. And I thought, hey, cool. And hanging on the wall is an aviation map 
of Virginia. And I thought, I wonder if they're giving those away. So my friend Scott and I, we go to the aviation booth. And sure enough, they have those maps. And the guy behind there just starts talking and talking and talking. And, and uh, I said, well, I'm not a pilot, but Scott's a pilot. And, and he, you know, he flies this plane, all this sort of stuff. And he's talking. And, well, how'd you guys become friends? Or how, how come you're from Virginia and he's from Wisconsin? How'd that happen? I said, well, I used to live up here. We're real good friends and everything. And, and we're talking a while. And he said, uh, he said, oh, well, um, what do you do that caused you to move? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it, so if I suffer here for being a Christian, I'll receive glory with Christ. For those of you who, uh, who want that, it's there for you. Look at verse number 14. Look at what he says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. All, all too often, li- listen, read this one more time. Let this sink in. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That doesn't sound right, does it? That sounds countercultural. Why? Why are you blessed? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is upon you. All too often when believers suffer and face hard times, they, they, they ask this question, where is God? Have I displeased God? Has God left me to my own resources? Is my suffering a sign of God's disfavor, even His anger? And although the human heart naturally tends to view suffering this way, Peter's teaching corrects his readers' understanding and their experience and says, rather rejoice because in this suffering you are blessed. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon the believer who suffers rather than sins. So if you're willing to suffer rather than compromise, it indicates an inner transforming work of the Holy Spirit on your life um, that has set us apart and we're being built into a living stone in the house of God. God has not abandoned the Christian who suffers. To the contrary, according to this verse, when a Christian suffers for the name of Christ, God's powerful Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. What a blessing that is, isn't it? Let me give you number three. Number three, what's the third principle? Inspect the reason for your suffering. I could rename this, sometimes you deserve to suffer. Look at the verse. Look at verse number 15. You'll see what I'm talking about. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Not all suffering results in reward or the affirming of your faith, or or is the result of the affirming of your faith. Sometimes, some of you all are just difficult You didn't think your pastor was going to tell you that today, did you? You know, sometimes a Christian suffers because they're an angry person. The, this word murder, when he uses the word murder, he's not literally talking about murder. He's talking about, we know that murder is the, the greatest extent of the sin of anger. Anger leads to murder. And so, so you suffer because you display anger. Or you display resentment, or you're harsh in your judgment, 
or you scorn or you scoff or you, you despise or belittle people that you suffer because of that. Refraining from theft, he says, don't be a thief means you're, you're not greedy. Sometimes Christians suffer because they're greedy or they're, they're envious or they manipulate. Uh, to get more money or they abuse funds. Some, some people suffer because they buy too much and they can't pay their debts or they waste their wealth or they waste creation. You suffer because of these. And so he's saying, inspect your life. Inspect the reason for your suffering. Make sure that you're not suffering because you're a meddler. I had fun looking at this word. It's a very interesting word. It literally means over another's affairs. Overseer of another's affair. Let me explain why. There's a word in there. It's a compound word, that word meddler. And one half of it is episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal church. And in the Bible, it's translated bishop. You've seen the word bishop in the Bible. He's an overseer. The DSV, a lot of times, will use the word overseer. Episcopos. In other words, you watch over everyone else's affairs. The second half of that word is alas. Alas, and it means everyone. Alas, episcopos. Basically, the two words together. You don't be a meddler. Meddlers interfere. They, they take on roles that's not properly theirs. You, you've seen it in a church. You know, the person who thinks they're in charge of this, the person who thinks they're in charge of that, and, and they, they meddle in everybody's affairs. They might scheme to, to gain influence outside their sphere. They might get their nose in matters that aren't their concern. Or how about, this is, this is everyone's favorite, they offer unwanted advice. No one gladly listens to a meddler. Most are irritated. For example, if your child is acting up at the grocery store, how many parents here gladly welcome unsolicited parenting advice from a stranger? That's a meddler. And so Peter says, don't suffer because you're a meddler. When, when, um, don't, don't be obnoxious. Sometimes you're, you're persecuted because you're obnoxious. When we receive harsh treatment, we should ask, what have I done to deserve this? Rather than ask, why are they persecuting me? See the difference? What have I done to deserve this? Rather than saying, why are they being this way to me? For example, if we freely share pointed opinions on Facebook or on blogs or on social media, you shouldn't be surprised if people disagree with you and criticize your opinion. The most opinionated people a lot of times are the ones that have the, the easiest feelings to hurt. You know, they got a big chip and you can really knock it off their shoulder pretty easily just by going like that. And it's, you know, why is everybody so mean to me? Well, you're obnoxious. <laughs> Look, if you're offering, let me, one, one more little bit. If you're offering your opinion on social media, and I don't care if it's about some religious topic, and of course political, uh, we won't even go there. If you offer your opinion out there and it's pretty pointed, don't come to church or don't tell people I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian if the fact of the matter is you just had, you're just an opinionated 
critic who are hard to get along with. Okay, if somebody somebody is pointed back at your opinion when you're when you're pointed, don't call it persecution. It's just a predictable consequence of sharp debate. Well, that's enough about that. Let's go on to number four. Fourth thing that we should uh, look for is we should glorify God because we are bearing His name. Look at verse number sixteen. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What's in that name? Go back to the first part of the verse. If anyone suffers as a Christian, the name Christian is what he's talking about. Because Christians don't go along with societal norms and and subscribe to the values of culture around them. They can become objects of slander or even social ostracism. We, We talked about this. The purpose is to shame the Christian. Think about it. So when we don't give in to the... Um, LGBT sexual revolution, when we don't give in to the pressure to condone living together outside of marriage, we, we feel social pressure. We, we feel like people are trying to shame us. It is at that point that we can glorify God in His name because the name Christians associated. And this is where, once again, is important for a pilot to trust his instruments and look at his instruments is important for us to keep our eyes on the Lord and trust the Lord because he knows what he's doing. Number five, fifth thing to remember, we will all stand before God who is the judge. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, this is an Old Testament quote, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When we suffer, in other words, we don't have to be ashamed, but rather we can glorify God because trials are part of the judgment of God on His house. Now, I had a lot of fun tracing this concept back into the Old Testament. And it was a real blessing to me. And I want to share it with you and see, hopefully you're as blessed as I was about it. But literally, look at, look at, the, look at the verse again. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I want to give you the literal translation. The literal translation, It is time for judgment to begin from... The not household of God, but the house of God. Now that changes things, doesn't it? Household is what? Family. House of God is what? It's talking about a, a temple or a building. What on earth is he talking about here? Well, I think it's very likely that Peter is thinking of a judgment scene in Ezekiel chapter 9. I want you to turn there, and I'm going to set this up because this is beautiful. This is really neat what Peter did here. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Let me set it up for you. Because Ezekiel is one of the, the major prophets. A lot of times you start getting to those, those parts and people have no idea what we're talking about. And you know, I don't know when who lived or whatever people will say. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me help you out. Ezekiel prophesied at that transition time from when Israel was living in, when Judah, the southern kingdom, was living in Judah, and the time that they went into exile. He, he prophesied during that time period. Babylon did not come in 
and take the Israelites out of Jerusalem all at once. I don't know if you knew that or not. There are about four deportations. The final one, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was leveled and it was made uninhabitable. But there were other deportations. Ezekiel was deported in the first deportation about 20 years prior to when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. That's your history lesson. Okay, That's what's going on here. Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he's writing prophecies back to the people in Jerusalem. That's what's important to understand. In Ezekiel 9, God is letting the Israelites know that he is about to judge, and here's the reason why. And I want to point this out because this is really good. Ready? Ezekiel 9. Verse number one, and what he's going to judge them for is for hypocritical worship. Verse number one, the Lord calls executioners to draw near a city. So, so now we know that we're talking about a spiritual analogy here. He calls the executioners to the city. Verse number four, he calls another messenger and he tells that messenger to put a mark on the forehead of all who sigh and groan at abominations. Now what is he talking about? He is putting a mark on the genuine children of God. Remember, Israel thought that they were all part of the house of God because they were born into Israel. We're all going to heaven because we're, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus shot that down in no uncertain terms in the Gospels. And this mark that the messenger was putting was in, in those, that house of God, there were some people who were committing the abominations. There were some people who weren't committing them, but they were completely okay with them. And then there were some who it really grieved their heart. You see? And what God said, more or less, is the ones who grieve at the abominations, those are the ones who are true children of God, put a mark on their forehead. Okay? Then look what happens. Then in in Ezekiel 9, he says in verse number 5, he tells the executioners to kill all of those who do not have that mark on their forehead. And in verse number 6, he says what? And begin where? The SV says, at my sanctuary. The New American Standard really parallels what uh, Peter says, you shall start at my sanctuary. That's, the sanctuary is what? That sanctuary was the house that Solomon built for God. Start at my house and work your way out. Does that make sense? That's what he's told to do. Now look at Peter again, First Peter chapter 4 and verses 17 and 18. And I'm going to start wrapping this up, but... For it is time to begin, for, for judgment to begin from the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay? So spiritually, Peter is saying that in the church right now, is, is spiritually, is the church considered the house of God? 
It is. We're, Peter, Peter said earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 1 that we're being built into a spiritual house. Remember that? A spiritual temple. So we're the house of God. And Peter says that these trials that are coming are the judgment of God beginning at the house of God. And he's separating those who do not know God from those that do. He, he's telling you this, this has been going on since far back in Old Testament times. Ezekiel talked about it five, from 600 B.C. to 586 B.C. It's still going on today. And so the, when you see that masses of people are leaving the church and people are wondering if the church is going to survive, the answer is it is because Christ is building His church. The people leaving never were believers to begin with. That makes sense. Now you're you're saying to yourself, well, I want to say one more thing about this. With God also comes a refining fire, and so what we must do in in accordance to this, it, it, what he's teaching here in verses seventeen and eighteen, is we need to get rid of all of our iniquities, purify ourselves of iniquities in order to avoid that pain of discipline. Trials, no matter if they're purifying trials for the church or personally, all trials cause us to look at ourselves and say, what, what, am I living right before the Lord? Isn't that true? We all do that. And that that's a good thing. And so we, if you find sin in your life, repent. So add verse 18 to this, and we can summarize Peter's teaching this way. Look at what he's basically saying in these two verses. It is better to stand by one's faith now, even though it will result in suffering, than to not deny Jesus for the present relief from that suffering, only to suffer much worse at the judgment as one who has denied and rejected Christ. Now, why, why is this important? Because earlier in chapter 4, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes back, the first thing that happens is judgment. And the sheep are going the one way, goats are going another. And he's talking about eternal judgment. It's better to suffer now than suffer punishment in in um, hell for all of eternity. And this brings us all the way back to what I began with. Verse number 19, look at what he says. He says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. God wills that suffering come our way. It seems cruel, doesn't it? Doesn't it really seem kind of cruel? No parent's going to do that to her child. Well, you will if it's going to teach them a lesson, right? Yeah. Um, but um, it seems cruel. But there's no better comfort in suffering that can be found than this, that it's God's good and perfect will that you suffer. Now, what comes with that? And please listen, this is so important is that then tells us that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and its duration. And that limit is set and maintained by the God who is our Creator, our Savior, our Sustainer, and our Father. And therein also lies a knowledge that this suffering is only for our good, purifying us, 
drawing us closer to the Lord, making us more like Him. And in it all, we are not alone, but we can depend upon His care as our Creator. We can rejoice in the fellowship of our Savior who suffered uh, before we did. We can revel in the constant presence of the Spirit of glory who delights to rest upon Him. And these things are so important. So, let me sum up this. When you suffer for being a Christian, Peter tells us this. Look to these spiritual principles. It's just like the pilot that I was talking about at the, at the very beginning. The pilot who trusts his instruments during a time when there's no horizon that can be seen. The pilot who trusts his instruments survive. When you are in the midst of suffering for being a Christian and it just, you're just completely disoriented trying to figure it out, trust, entrust yourself to the faithful creator who is doing it for your good and who says that this will result in your glory. How much glory does Christ have right now? Incredible amounts. How long will that glory last? For eternity. You might suffer temporary shame here on earth for being a Christian. But if you affirm Christ, you'll experience eternal glory with your Savior in heaven. Lord, I know that this is not necessarily an easy message to preach. Uh, we don't like to talk about suffering. We don't like to think about suffering. Uh, we don't even like to suffer, Lord. But sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, it can be disorienting. It can make us ask questions such as, does God really love us? Is it, are His promises true? Am I, am I doing something wrong? And I, I pray that we'll take to heart the corrective that, that Peter gave us to keep our eyes on Jesus, knowing that all suffering is only temporary, knowing that it results in glory, knowing that it, that it proves that you're a believer, that it proves that it purifies us and causes us to be more like Jesus Christ. May we rejoice in this, all these spiritual truths, not give in to the pressures of our society that would have us to, to compromise our biblical beliefs. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.